0: This is Anthony Anarino, and you're listening to In the Arena. There aren't too many books that when you read them, that your life is literally changed for having read the book. But A Million Miles in a Thousand Years is one of those books by author Don Miller, who's a public speaker and a writer and the CEO of a company called StoryBrand. Don just wrote a new book called StoryBrand, which explains the way that he helps businesses clarify their message with a framework that you can easily use. This is my friend Don Miller in the arena. Donald Miller, how are you? I'm
1: wonderful, Anthony. Thanks for having me on.
2: Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on your show, too. And you know what? I've been a longtime fan, and I said this on your show, a million miles in a thousand years. I don't know. Probably everyone who's read that has probably told you what a tremendous impact it had on their lives. How did that book do generally? I
1: think it's the second bestseller I've written, I believe. Scary Close is the book came out two years ago, and it may be tied for that. But yeah, that's still that's still one of my favorites too. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't even keep my books around the house, so they just kind of disappear. <laughs> but that one, I always, I always, I don't know, I just it was amazing discovery. You know, this this idea of narrative, story, and these kinds of things, and how we can live a better story. It still shapes the way I live today. So for me personally, uh, I still consider that a groundbreaking realization and it was all captured in that book but thanks for saying that very kind
2: well then I'll say something not as kind when Obama <laughs> ran for president people were like how arrogant of this man to have written two biographies of himself <laughs> by the age of forty five <laughs> yeah and you're laughing explain why you're laughing
1: <laughs> well I think I've written seven <laughs> except they're not uh, they're you know I, I jokingly call them memoir they're really more uh exploring an idea through a personal lens like Brene Brown or something. But the publisher kept coming back, you know, and I'd say, I want to write about this or I want to write fiction or I want to write this. And they'd say, man, you know, we really just want another memoir. You know, when you write your eighth memoir, you're a clinical narcissist. So I put my foot down and said, I think we're done with that.
2: Uh, That is so funny. And it's really interesting how they put you in a box. So my publisher, I said, listen, I want to write a leadership book and I want to write a success book and a coaching book. And they're like, no, you're a sales guy. Just stay in your lane and write (laughs) sales. I'm like, no, actually, I'm a human, and I have more than one dimension. And uh, they're like, no, 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 you confuse everybody.
1: Well, that's great. Good for you for breaking out of that lane.
2: Well, let's talk about you confusing everybody because you wrote a business book. Yeah,
1: it was a a great pivot for me.
2: But not an unnatural one because you've been doing this work for a long time. How long have you been doing the work at StoryBrand?
1: Well, even when I wrote my first book, when I was in my mid-20s, I wrote that book at night, and in my day job was the president of a publishing company. So I knew, I understood business way before that, and then wrote a book for fun. It sold very few copies, and then wrote another book for fun, and it became a New York Times bestseller, and I had to support that book. I didn't have to, but there was so much a demand for me to get out there and talk about the book that I had to sell my publishing company. I was president of one company then I left that company, started another one, and then sold that one. So that's stuff I never talked about in any of my books. I never talked about this whole business side of what I did, which when you read my books, they're just, they're just not about that. And so to come full circle and actually write a business book really feels like something I've been thinking about for 20 years. And to me, it feels I'm much more comfortable talking about business strategy and business principles and and marketing than I I am talking about my life or or memoir kind of stuff. So it has been a bit of a strange pivot where I I think most people feel like, well, he's really changed and he's become something different where where that's more the story of how I wrote those other books is I I became something different in order to write those books. And so this is much more comfortable for me.
2: Yeah. And I think that what I I recognize about your work now that I have story brand in my hand is I think it's easy to write the introspective stuff. But that's something that is very, very personal. And when you're putting it down on paper, you're objectifying it. But when you're in a room full of people and you're trying to help them get business results, none of that stuff is coming across when you're in a workshop, like a story brand workshop. None of this stuff, you may tell stories, but it's not that story and it's not that introspection. You're really doing something very different.
1: Yeah, it is. And it has felt like a natural progression for me. One of the things is I, I spent years telling my story and this book is really helping other people tell theirs. It's helping them find a voice and be heard and understood in the marketplace. So, you know, it's a great evolution of my career and, it, and it's honestly, I think it's more fulfilling than anything I've ever done, which, which says something, you know, helping other people tell their stories is probably more fulfilling than us telling our own. And that's, that's been true.
2: That's a good pivot into the book. And I, I want to just sort of start sharing the frame with people here so they get an idea of the work that you actually do in addition to writing. Um, and you're a tremendous writer, and I'm a huge fan. And in many ways, I'm jealous. So I have a lot of pain talking to you because you're such a good writer.
1: <laughs> That's very kind of you.
2: The idea of the framework that you use for Story brand starts with the central premise that the customer is the hero and not your brand. And I'll just give you one one minute on this and let you sort of explain that. But the framework that I use, I call level four value creation, which means you really have to focus on the strategic outcomes that your client needs. And if you start right. talking about yourself and your product and your clients and your product service offering and whatever that is. It just loses people because it makes you the star of a story that means they're not the star of that story. So, can you riff on that and explain how you help people make that shift away from being, look, it's us oriented. We have to share our story to actually understanding that that's not what you're doing when you're marketing?
1: Well, I have people come to me all the time and say, we really need Story Brand. We've got a great story and we just need help getting it out there. And that's actually not what we do. And not only that, but I'm convinced that if you do get your story out there, it will cost you money it will cost you business. I mean, people are turned off by that. And the reason is we all wake up self-identifying as heroes in stories. And if I'm a hero and I meet you at a cocktail party and you tell me all about yourself, my subconscious begins to process you as a hero as well. And subconsciously, we contend with each other because we wrongly sometimes believe there's a scarcity of resources, right? So I'm a hero, you're a hero, boy, I wish you the best and I hope your story works out. But if you wouldn't mind stepping aside, I'm looking for somebody to help me with my story. And that character in story tradition for two thousand years or more, since Aristotle and Plato, is called the guide. We call that character the guide at Story Brand. And it's basically this this idea that another character comes in. Think of Yoda, think of Gandalf, think of Haymitch, think of Woody from Cheers in the Hunger Games, you know, these kinds of things. The there's this other character that steps into the story and their purpose in that story is to help the hero win the day. And so at StoryBrand, the big paradigm shift is don't play the hero in the story. Play the guide. Play the character that exists to help the hero win. And that's the character they're looking for.
2: It's an interesting shift. Um, in in your experience doing this now with, I mean, thousands of different companies, right? Yeah. What is it that helps them make this shift from the self-orientation and we're the center of the story and we're going to tell you about our successes how do you help people shift and say, you're actually here to help them have success and they're the star of the story? And now how do you shift that focus? Well, I, it's, I find it's it not difficult a... to explain to people that your marketing material, everything you say, has nothing to do with your client or their perception of their problems.
1: Well, I just explain it as a financial decision. You know, if you if you just measure the results of you playing the hero versus you playing the guide, they're dramatic. And and we see companies come through time and time again who play the guide instead of the hero, and you see them double in revenue, you see them triple in revenue. That's not the only thing they're doing. They're also creating very clear messaging points. But it makes an enormous difference. And so for me, if you can't get past that, if you're not in this to grow your business and make more money and increase your revenue and help more customers solve their problems, I don't spend any more time explaining it than that. Because there's somebody standing behind you who wants me to teach it to them. So (laughs) so just step aside and we'll, we'll keep going. And I don't mean to be so arrogant about that, except that's just a basic one-on-one principle. So when people fight me on it, I just say, we'll we'll come back when you find out that that's not really working for you.
2: I want to talk uh, about the next piece of this framework for a minute. Actually, I want you to talk about it because you're going to be able to explain this better than I can. And I'm hoping you can deepen my understanding of the second principle, which is we're selling solutions to external problems But customers are buying solutions to internal problems. What is the shift there as you think about story brand and as you think about what people are really trying to do branding with stories to begin with?
1: Well, in stories, there's an external problem that the hero is trying to resolve. A bomb needs to be disarmed. The woman wants a a raise at her work, whatever that is. But that's not actually what the story is about. What the story is about is the way the hero is feeling about their external problem, meaning the bomb needs to be disarmed, but years ago, the hero tried to disarm a bomb, and it didn't work out, and people got hurt, and now he's wondering if he has what it takes to do it again. It's always a sense of self-doubt. There's a transformation that occurs in the life of the hero from filled with doubt, ill-equipped, unskilled, can't get the job done, and unwilling, to the end of the movie where they are equipped, skilled, brave, courageous. They're a different person. And that transformation marks an internal journey that the hero is on. If you took that out of the screenplay, you would lose the audience. What that teaches us as brand leaders is our customers want us to guide them on an internal journey. Not only do they have an external problem, but that external problem is causing them some sense of frustration, unpleasantness in life. And that is actually what they're trying to resolve. So we always say companies try to resolve external problems but people buy resolutions to internal problems and so when we begin to focus some of our marketing collateral on the resolution of our customers frustrations you see greater results you know if i if i have a lawn care company and i offer a discount on lawn care and we'll come by once a week and mow your lawn i'm going to do x amount of business but when i say your lawn can be the envy of the neighborhood and people can walk by and say wow isn't that a beautiful house Well, what did I just offer you? I offered you status. I offered you the resolution of embarrassment. I offered you something internal. And that will always outsell the external. And it's one of the principles in the building a story brand book on in the problem chapter, the second part of the framework, on what's really motivating people to make purchases. And it's always the resolution of an internal frustration, much more than the external problem we actually solve. It's an internal problem that motivates their buying decisions.
2: I love it that you use something as human as status or significance. And you may or may not know this, but the reason that landscaping and having these massive gardens existed was for aristocrats to show off how wealthy they were compared to their neighbors.
1: That's right, yeah. Yeah, it was status.
2: It was status, yeah. And so if your yard looks better than mine, It says something about your status versus my status, and uh, that's a deeply human thing that you just described.
1: Well, it's a survival mechanism. Status, you know, the only things that people want are things that help them survive and thrive, and so status is a sign of power. It gets rid of foes. It attracts alliances. It does things that help us survive and thrive. And one of the the first chapter of the book talks about this. It talks about the two dominant motivations or dominant objectives of the human brain. And one is to survive and thrive. And the second is to conserve calories, meaning our companies have to explain how we help people survive and thrive. And we have to do so so simply that we don't cause people to think very hard, which causes them to burn calories in their brain. And at some point, the survival mechanism will shut off the brain so that it doesn't listen to this nonsense message anymore. In other words, when I go to your website, my brain, whether I know it or not, is looking for ways that you can help me survive and thrive. And and that's a a number of things. It can be save time, simplify my life, make money, reduce risk, organize information, integrate information, connection with a tribe that might help me survive. It can be affiliation or belonging, self-actualization, on and on. All these ways that we can help somebody survive. When you associate a survival trigger with your product the perceived value of that product goes through the roof and if you can do that in such a way that you don't ask your customers to burn very many calories to understand how you can help them survive it works all the better and you know the example i give anthony is i've talked to hundreds of thousands of people in the past year and i've said in public audiences what did jeb bush want to do with america and nobody has ever given me an answer to that question when I say, what does Donald Trump want to do with America? Everybody says, make America great again. Now, regardless of who you think should be the president, one of those candidates chose something that would give people status, a tribe, and help people survive and thrive. And he did so with a slogan that caused nobody to burn any calories to understand. And that man is president of the United States. Jeb Bush wrote a book on immigration, a very thoughtful book, a well-informed resourceful, thoughtful perspective, a book on immigration. Nobody's read it. Donald Trump came up with a slogan, build a wall. That is an absurdly simple solution. So absurdly simple, that is actually absurd. (laughs) There's no solution at all. But it was something that everybody, they thought they could understand. It costs no calories to understand it. And it was something that would, quote, keep them safe, which is a survival mechanism. And he's now president of the United States. Now, that's no justification of these messages that aren't true or accurate or whatever, all politicians do that and many companies do that. What it means though is that if we have a superior product in the marketplace, but we don't market that product in such a way that it helps people understand how we we can help them survive and thrive and do so so simply they don't have to burn any calories, you will get beat by the competition every time, even if they have an inferior product. People don't buy the best products and services, they buy the ones that they can understand the fastest. And you just look around and, and it's, it, it's the most obvious thing in the world.
2: It's interesting to me how you get to Maslow's deficiency needs and how compelling those are for human beings. And they are very, very deep. And I, I think of these things, you know, there's a lot of things that people like to look at that are fads. And I think that there's always a new idea, but these deep structures just don't change over time. And they've been built into us over such a long period of time that they're universal. And when you recognize them, you have the immediate ability to to respond to them.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: I want to talk about entering into the customer story as a guide. And I think that this is a really interesting concept, number one. And I'm interested in hearing you talk about the execution of marketing that idea as to how do you enter into that story as the guide and and occupy that space. Because I think in in my world in sales, we want to be the trusted advisor. And I continually tease audiences that you only need two things to be a trusted advisor. You need trust and advice. (laughs) And if you don't have the advice part, then you're not the guide. So you have to have a certain level of depth in a certain area to do that. But I find that people struggle with where do I enter into that conversation? And literally, I think for marketers, especially in big companies that I see, they don't understand that that's the role at all. I mean, they're very, very disconnected from the salesperson or the person who wants to be a trusted advisor or consultative or has this entrepreneurial vision. They have to find a way to occupy that space. And that's what this chapter made me think was you're trying to help people occupy that space and figure out how to make that impression coming into this.
1: Well, what we're talking about is really playing the Yoda character in Luke Skywalker's story, or playing the Hamish character in Katniss's story, or Gandalf, you know, in in the Hobbit. There's a need every human being has for somebody to show them the way, and you hit on exactly the two step formula: trust and advice, and. There's a professor at Harvard who talks about making a great first impression. And she says the one-two punch is trust and respect. And then what we say at StoryBrand is it's empathy and authority, but we're all saying the exact same thing. We've We've all stumbled upon it because it's just true. What the customer has to sense is that we have stepped into their story and we care about their pain. We care about the frustrations they're experiencing. We care about the problem that they're dealing with. But just caring about that problem is not enough. We also have to know how to get them out of it. And so it's the one-two punch of I feel your pain and I know how to get you out of this. When you do that, when you communicate those two ideas in your marketing collateral or in your sales pitch or in your elevator pitch or whatever, when you communicate those two ideas, you earn the heart of the customer and then you also earn their respect as well because you can get them out. And they're both incredibly important. If I said, look, I can get you out of this. I really don't care where they get out of this. I don't care about you. You're not going to let me into your story. And if I say, I care about you deeply, but I'm not competent enough to get you out of this, I haven't earned a place in your story either. And so both are very important. We have to care. and We have to be competent to get people out. If, you know, if I go to a nutritionist and I say, hey, I need to lose 30 pounds, but it's been really difficult. You know, I, I want to eat a bowl of ice cream every night before bed. And the nutritionist looks back at me and says, me too. You know, I'm at the wrong nutritionist. So it's, it's exactly what you're saying, Anthony. You're calling it giving good advice. I just call that competency. You know what you're doing. And there's a temptation, especially with millennials, we're hearing that they just want us to put our arms around them and don't be too authoritarian. I completely push back against that. You can go to any millennial and say, let's just be friends. I really can't get you out of your problem, but why don't you pay me anyway? They're going to say no. You know, they're they're, they're looking for somebody who knows what they're doing. And so never, ever seed ground on your competency to help your customers solve their problems.
2: What's interesting about that is I had a brain surgery 25 years ago. And when I described Dr. John, too, who did the surgery, when I would ask him a question, he would give me sometimes one word answers or one short sentence answer. And he gave no ground in engaging in this conversation (laughs) with me. And people had asked the question, like, well, his bedside manner is not great, and he's not really talkative. And I thought to myself then, and I still think it now even more, do you really want a brain surgeon that's <laughs> not super confident? I mean, do you want a guy who's nervous and going, you know, Don, I think I might be able to do this if everything is exactly right? You know, you don't, you yeah. don't want that guy. You want a guy who says, I can do this.
1: Yeah. You don't want the guy who says, look, if this goes really poorly, we'll still be friends.
2: <laughs> Not in this case, no. you
1: don't. Not in this case, yeah. Nor will we be friends.
2: <laughs> the fact of the matter was I found out later on that students opened my skull, and then they went into the next room to open somebody else up, and he did two surgeries at exactly the same time.
1: Oh, heavenly days. Like he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Two
2: brain surgeries at the same time. And then I thought, Wow. That's a very high level of confidence and competence, right? Absolutely. The story brand framework here is in, in the book. It's a short book, too. I mean, it's, what, 150, 175 pages?
1: I think it's about 230, 40 but you could probably get through it in a day.
2: I got the galley. Yeah, it is. It's a fast read. The whole framework is here, and I will tell anybody who's listening, it's a complete framework, and you could actually do the work yourself with just the book by itself, in, in addition to coming to your workshops.
1: Yeah, there's a free software component that comes with the book. So when you buy the book, it leads you to a website called mystorybrand.com. And it's a piece of software that we've created where you can get your entire brand message on one page. There's seven components to the brand message, but people are amazed. They get it down on one page and they look at it and they suddenly they know exactly what to say at a cocktail party. They know what to put on their website. They know what to put in their email. When somebody asks what they do, they, they know exactly what to say, and sales just skyrocket. It is possible to just read the book and and fill out the software. We tried to make the process as easy as possible to get through to the final product, which is you being competent when you talk about your brand.
2: Yeah, and it's a very complete frame, and I enjoyed the book a lot. And I want to get us out of the framework and talk about a couple other concepts that you have here that I think will serve people later in the book. You talk about smart brands defining an aspirational identity. And I think I would argue with you a little bit on this that in some countries, they're not as aspirational as we are here in the United States. Yeah, you'd, you'd be talking to the choir there. You're talking about a seriously aspirational culture here in the United States, though. So, can you well, talk about the brand and helping people identify that aspiration?
1: Well, by aspiration, I don't mean drive, I mean the human desire to be a better version of yourself. So, if you go to Peru, I actually asked I was so confused by my time in Peru about what drives these people, you know. It felt like systemic poverty, but at the same time they're rich in resources. And finally I just asked. I said, you know, wh- what are the values of these people, the, the people of Peru? And my guide said god and family. So it isn't wealth or success, you know, and and so then you look and you go, "Oh, these people are driven they're not driven to accomplish what we're driven to accomplish. In fact, they're so driven to God and family that it's costing them mansions and these sorts of things that are, are debatably unimportant. But there's still the desire to be an aspirational identity. There's a desire to be godly. There's a desire to be a good father. A desire to be a good providing mother. These kinds of things. What we learn though from story is that every story is really about a character becoming a better version of themselves. And brands that participate in their customer's transformation, achieve enormous success in the marketplace. You know, you, when you look at Steve Jobs, who was cast out of Apple, he was never actually forced to leave, but they put him in a building by himself so that he would go away. He got you know, the He read the writing on the wall, yeah. And he went over and, st- and started Next and then heavily bought into a company called Pixar that belonged to George Lucas, which was not a movie company. It was a hardware company. George Lucas bought into the hardware because he wanted to use it for CGI, but it just wasn't ready. And so he sold it to Steve Jobs. But it was the most robust hardware in the country at the time. They were using it for image scanning and in the medical community, and NASA was using these computers. And slowly, John Lasseter on staff at Pixar began doing animation with these computers as they became more robust. Well, that's the first thing, you know, a Listerine commercial was the first thing that Steve Jobs had made a profit on in ten years. And then Disney comes over and says, will you make this movie Toy Story? And that made him hundreds of millions of dollars. And suddenly Steve Jobs is the CEO and principal owner of a of a movie company and arguably the best storytellers in the history of the world, I think certainly since the days of Shakespeare. And he learned a lot about story. So he goes from getting cast out of Apple, where his, his final campaign was a nine-page ad in the New York Times spelling out all the technical features and details of, a, of, the, of the Lisa computer, which bombed miserably, because he made customers burn too many calories and he didn't associate it with their survival. So there you go, you can just predict that failure. And he goes from that to coming back after studying story for so many years with just two words, think different. And instead of selling computers, he began to sell an identity. And you'll remember in those campaigns in the nineties, we just have a picture of John Lennon on a built on a white billboard said think different and the Apple logo. What in the world is that? How much bandwidth is in that computer? How many megapixels? How many, you know? Nothing. The computer's not even on the billboard. And there are ads. There's no computers in the ads. It's just anthemic music over Steve Jobs saying, you know, the world sees you as a misfit, but we at Apple see you as a genius. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, We're, we want to participate in helping you be recognized as a genius. And we have some tools, some computers that can help you do that. And the company becomes one of the largest companies in the world. What did he start selling? He started selling an identity, an aspirational identity.
2: I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a Robin Williams dialogue from that movie, the Dead Poets Society, uh, over an iPad ad. Have you ever seen that? I have,
1: and it was a fantastic ad. And again, he's selling an identity.
2: A hundred percent. I use that in workshops to show people there's never a mention of screen resolution. There's never a mention of how much memory, how many gigs of RAM, because it doesn't matter. It's about who you are. And he speaks so directly to that, that you don't really care about what's in the box you just no. want
1: one and, and the product does have to be good but apple doesn't make the best computers and it, they certainly don't make the best phones by any stretch of the imagination but they sell the most of them because people associate an aspirational identity with that product and and the desire goes through the roof and people wait around the block you know overnight camping to get the new evolution of, of a little machine the only motivation that you, that would explain that kind of behavior is they're buying into something that's deeply felt and that is identity.
2: Yeah. I want to ask you uh, one question back to this conversation about Peru. I do think in America, this might be the only place where we spend the kind of money we do on personal improvement. And I'm even thinking about European countries. When it comes to that identity and believing that you can break through wherever you are, it seems like America is a place where that seems to be more pervasive and more persistent. And that aspiration, the ability that you can break through whatever barriers you have, seems to be more prevalent than any place else I've I've visited.
1: Well, I think it's absolutely true. And I think there are reasons for that. That, you know, one, there's a personality that would get on a boat and cross an ocean, you know, and risk their lives to get here. And even further, there's a personality that would once they're here, get in a canoe and cross America by various rivers to go out west. You know, that's part of the explanation. And the other part is you know, you go to places that are wonderful countries where the the happiness metrics are very high, places like Norway, and yet you still see this idea that this regulating the scoreboard. And so you just can't really get rich in this country. You can't succeed too much because you begin to be punished for that and the wealth is shared downward. I think there are wonderful arguments for that. I personally don't agree with that, even though I think there are wonderful arguments for it and I see that point of view. But what that does is it steals ambition, it steals motivation. And so, you know, it's hard to argue with the creation that has come out of the American psyche. You know, even today, if you look at Elon Musk, these are uniquely American ideas that are being generated to help the environment. And, and you know, as much as our healthcare system is messed up and does need a complete overhaul, so much of the research that is, has been done is part of that idea that individuals can succeed within this workplace. And so I do not believe that free markets should be completely left alone and never regulated because I'm a big proponent of the fall of man and the fact that people do need checks and balances is the genius of our system and it should exist everywhere, including healthcare. But I would also say that you remove individual success and opportunities to succeed and you begin to emasculate culture. And there's a danger to that because we could find cures to cancer. We could find... Alternative fuels. We could find these things if you let people have opportunities to succeed and, and motivation within that drive. It, it benefits the world. So I agree with you. But I would say, you know, if you go to Italy, there's not much of an opportunity to really succeed as an individual Italian. And look at their unemployment rate. You know, the same with France. You could argue against that in Norway, but the country owns the oil revenue. You know, and they still have astronomical taxes. So. You have to pick and choose. You have to pick and choose.
2: It's interesting. I ask, you know, Musk is from South Africa, right? Right. I always ask immigrants, like friends like Gerhard Schwantner, who's the publisher of Selling Power magazine and the Sales 3.0 conference, how old were you when you realized you were American? And he would tell you 10 when he met an American soldier and started being aware of the idea. He knew he was American. And I think that's probably true for a guy like Musk. And I was just with the entrepreneur behind Mentor Box shooting videos for them. They bought my book, and they're sending it to their members. And he's a Iranian, and he's been in the United States for 18 or 19 years. And I said, when did you know you were American? I asked him that question straight out of the gate without any setup at all. And he said, I was seven years old. I told my parents I'm leaving here. I'm going to the United States. I'm going to work for NASA. And he loves the awesome. country at twenty-one, he got a PhD and he worked for NASA. And but he knew it at a young age. It's just interesting to me that this idea of aspiration is so deep-seated that I think a lot of people recognize that they belong here specifically because of that. We're way off of story brand.
1: Well, I th- it's still it's a beautiful conversation. Yeah. It's a beautiful conversation. And and how interesting that somebody from Iran, which I've always wanted to visit, it, it sounds like a fascinating country, but they would recognize that aspiration within themselves and say, where's the place? Where's the fertile soil that will foster this? And they would come here. I wish more of us who are not immigrants would understand the beauty of that system and, and what's available to us here in the United States. And, of course, I i know with your audience, Anthony, I'm preaching to the choir. They're all going, yes, yes, yes.
2: <laughs> I think as president, I would find all of those people and bring them here as quickly as possible. You know, you're already American. You belong here. Get here because we could use you. Yeah. There you go. We need good thinking and entrepreneurship for sure. Where do people go to find you and where do you want to send people to learn more about StoryBrand?
1: Well, the book is Building a StoryBrand and you can find it, of course, wherever you buy books. If you get a receipt, a digital receipt, email that receipt, forward it to bonus at storybrand.com. And I've got a lecture. Actually, I have two of them. One of them is called The Secrets to How Customers Really Think. And that's a bonus. It's actually $148 worth of bonuses when you buy the $17 book. And the book itself will lead you to the software and all sorts of other links. But if you want to read about StoryBrand without reading the book, just go to storybrand.com and you can find out all about us there.
2: I do recommend you you pick up the book. It is a very fast read, number one. It's very prescriptive, number two. And this is I'm a huge fan of a book like this that says, do this. This is how yeah. you think about it. This is how you can do this. And it does that very, very well. And I'm still jealous of you and your writing, but thank you for coming on. And thanks for sharing StoryBrand.
1: You bet, Anthony. Thank you.
0: That was my friend Don Miller, and you can find him at StoryBrand.com. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at TheSalesBlog.com, where I write and publish daily. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash arena When you show up there, do hit the subscribe button. And when you go out to the blog, do sign up for my Sunday newsletter, thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter. My best work every week in your inbox so you can hit the ground running on Monday morning. That's it for this episode of In the Arena, and I'll see you here next time.